0: A while ago, just last year, the granddaughter of one of my friends died. Her name is Emma and she died at age 15. And I want to begin by sharing a video from her family. One of her best friends read out the speech that she planned to say at her baptism, which sadly she never got to read out, which began with her saying, throughout most of my life I have dealt with darkness and sadness. I have been bullied, I lost close friends, I have mourned the loss of loved ones, and I have struggled with addiction. Her life was filled with a lot of discouragement, and that's why people actually were writing on her coffin words of encouragement and things that they loved about her. In fact, it was really hard because she actually died only shortly after recovering from falling off a cliff. Would you please? So it was one of the most heartbreaking things to watch her. little casket being carried out of the church by her family. She had her whole life ahead of her. And there's nothing her family would want more than to hold their daughter again and to tell her everything's going to be alright. So can her family have any hope that they will see Emma again, that things will be alright? Who can say anything with certainty about life after death? This world is like a great waiting room with a door called death nearby. In the tragedies of life, we see people go through the door all the time and not returning to us. And so we desperately need someone to come back and to tell us what is on the other side. Most people are guesses in the waiting room about what is on the other side of the grave. And it's dangerous to be a guesser when the stakes are so high and when heaven and hell are on the table. So we need to know whether there is an expert in life and death, someone who's gone through the grave and come back to tell us what it's all about. In 2013, a panel consisting of an atheist, a feminist, and a Christian, sounds like I'm about to begin a joke, (laughs) but it's actually happened, which were asked... Which dangerous idea has the greatest potential to change the world for the better? One said abortion, another said freedom, but Peter Hitchens, who's an atheist turned Christian, brother of the very famous Christopher Hitchens, who's a strong atheist, said the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. Because it turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place, in which there is justice and there is hope. Have you ever wondered whether it would make any difference if Jesus died and stayed there? The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us, there is nothing new under the sun, as we saw yesterday. But the resurrection brings something new under the sun, for the first time. When we wait, there is a moment when existence itself is like a blank canvas, and I couldn't say who I am, where I am, or what lies ahead of me. And so we must remember each morning who we are, what we're up to that day. And if the resurrection is true, it's like waking up to a new reality. It transforms our understanding of who we are and what lies beyond the grave. Now, keep your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which Robin kindly read out for us, and cast your eyes over the first six verses of 1 Corinthians 15. In these verses, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus's specially appointed spokesmen, thinks about what is of first importance when it comes to the Christian message. But surprisingly, he doesn't focus on Jesus' death alone. He gives five out of six verses to focus on the resurrection. He says in verse six, there were over 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus at the same time showing the resurrection really happened. So why do you think the resurrection is so important? Well, firstly, the resurrection proves Death has been defeated. The resurrection proves death has been defeated. In John 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus got sick. Now, Lazarus' sister sent word to Jesus to help. Lazarus' sister Martha would have remembered all about what Jesus had done. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made people who had been sick walk, jump, run, and leap for joy. He could make Lazarus well. But in verse 5 it says, Because he loved then, Jesus what? It says he decided not to go and heal Lazarus. He didn't ride the first donkey to Bethany. He didn't run until his side earth. For two whole days he stayed right where he was. And as a result, Lazarus died. Now why would Jesus let someone he loves die? In verse 11 we read that Jesus' plan was to wake Lazarus up to show he has over death, to show that we don't have to say goodbye anymore, if we trust in him. Look at what he says to Martha in verse 25, it's up on the screen. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Lazarus will get sick and die again. All of us will die. Healing a sickness is only temporary. But Jesus wants to offer something permanent. Something eternal. So returning back to the narrative, after four days, Jesus arrived at the grave of Lazarus and asked that the stone be taken away. While the disciples and the crowds looked on, Jesus shouted like a lion's mighty roar. He said, Lazarus, come out. And in verse 44, it says, the dead man came out. This is tremendously important. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, He showed that he had power over the grave. He truly is the resurrection and the life. But in order for Lazarus to be resurrected, death needed to be defeated. And so in Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus needed to take the punishment for our sin. Now the Jews were already out to get Jesus, so in choosing to go to Jerusalem to heal Lazarus, Jesus signed his own death warrant. And so later in verse 53, after Jesus raised Lazarus, it says, the Jews in Jerusalem plotted to kill Jesus. Jesus was led to the cross and died. He said goodbye so that we don't have to. Jesus suffered so that we could enjoy a world without pain or suffering or cancer or death forever. All that was wrong with the world is being undone and reversed. The resurrection proves death has been defeated. But more than that, Jesus' resurrection also guarantees our resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, if you've got that in front of you, we read Jesus' resurrection was described as the first fruits, which is an odd thing for our modern ears to hear. We don't really come across the concept of first fruits very much because milk doesn't come from cows, fruit doesn't come from trees, and bread doesn't come from grain. Everything comes from the supermarket. I once heard the average age of an apple you buy from the supermarket is nine months. It sits in cold storage for nine months. But before food grew in supermarkets, people lived off the land. Last week I was in the country and my uncle was driving me around to look at the paddocks. And he wanted to look at particularly the paddocks where the tractors had just um, sowed seeds. And what he was looking for was the first head of wheat to burst through the, the soil. Because the first fruits of the crop guarantee that the rest of the harvest would follow. So when the Apostle Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, he is saying that Christians' resurrection from the dead is guaranteed. There is hope beyond the grave. Lazarus' resurrection is the first of many resurrections. But our resurrection is even greater than Lazarus' resurrection. Think about it. Why does Lazarus come out with his grave clothes still on? Well, Lazarus came back to the land of the dying. But Jesus does not come out with his grave clothes still on. Jesus leaves his grave clothes in the grave. Because Jesus moves beyond the world of death into the land of the living. And so will we if we trust Jesus. Paul speaks about our resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Have a read with me. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised spiritual body. I had a mate who had some pet yabbies. He's from Wagga um, Wagga. One day my mate Tim brought home a new yabby called Tuffy. Tuffy was bigger than the other yabbies. And when he was placed in the tank... He killed and ate all of those yabbies one by one. And so there was one or two survivors that had to be rescued from Tuffy. He was crazy. When food was placed in the tank, he would charge for it. And one day Tuffy died, surprisingly. They buried him in the garden. And that night, while they were sleeping in their house, from the tank they heard the gravel rustle as it would when Tuffy was there. He went down, and Tuffy was there. They didn't realize that Yabis shed their shells, and Tuffy was reborn, (laughs) even stronger than he ever was. Now, when Lazarus came back to life, he was still in the same body, but he eventually grew old and died. But like Puffy, we will shed our mortal bodies and receive new transformed bodies. In Emma's funeral, her dad said that Emma believed in the hope of the resurrection. Therefore, he said, her death was not the end of her life, but the beginning of a new life. And so can we hope with confidence to see our Christian friends and family again, even after death, And everything will be alright in the end. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. But the resurrection also means we are living in the end times. It changes the way we not only see our future, but also how we understand the present. After Jesus rose, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Spirit of God. Then, while the disciples were waiting on the day of Pentecost, there was a gust of wind. And tongues of flame came in and rested on everyone's heads, and each person heard one another speaking the things of God in their own language. And people asked, What is going on? In the sermon on that day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, verse 32, Peter declared that in his resurrection, Jesus has been raised to the right hand of God and had begun to reign over his kingdom. And Jesus talked about the kingdom as both a present and future kingdom. While Jesus has been declared king through his resurrection, there is a sense in which his kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. While Jesus has been declared king, Pentecost says we are still waiting his return, and in the meantime, we're in the last days. And while we live in the last days, we still live under the effects of the curse of sin and death, and the devil, though defeated, is still active. Now, it can be said of World War II that it was won in two separate moments. The first was D-Day on June 1944, when the Allied forces launched a massive invasion which secured the victory by liberating Western Europe from Nazi Nazi Germany's control. The second was the day the Nazis finally surrendered in May 7, 1945. Now, while they experienced the evils of war, even after D-Day, The Allies continued on with great confidence, knowing the war had already been won. In a similar way, through Jesus' death and resurrection, the war was won. Paul exclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Thanks be to God, because mankind's greatest enemy, which is death, has been swallowed up in victory. The Apostle mocked death itself with the words, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death does not have the same sting for us as it does for those without this future hope. I was at a friend's buck's party quite a long time ago, and the buck had the chance to shoot all of his friends as they ran past with paintball. And there was a bigger guy called Andy. And I decided, why should both of us get hit? So I ran behind the big fellow. I was getting shot at, no doubt about it. But he was bigger than I was, and so he protected me. And I finished the race without taking any blows. But Andy on the Hunt was covered in welts. <laughs> Through his death on the cross, Jesus has taken the sting out of all of Satan's bullets. They cannot harm our soul. But like the retreating Germans, Satan is still active. And a wounded enemy is still a dangerous enemy. So in John 17, 15, Jesus prayed for his disciples. In his last prayer, saying, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. In a world of sin and temptation, Jesus prays that we would resist the influence of the evil one. Now, thinking about warfare, one of the most important aspects is military security, and it involves threat analysis. And so, what is our threat? Well, Ephesians 6, which says, Finally, be strong. In the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, here Paul identifies our threat as the devil, and he identifies the kind of warfare we're engaged in in as spiritual warfare. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. He says, be watchful. Now being watchful isn't waiting like waiting for a washing machine repairman to come to your house between 9 and 5. Christian watchfulness is alert, active waiting. Now as you know, my house got broken into a few years ago. And it was really annoying because they took the most valuable thing that we own, a family heirloom ring. And the thing about thieves is you never know when they're coming. And if you knew that they were coming, you would be ready. You'd be waiting to clock them over the head with a baseball bat, or at least that's what I would probably do. But if you don't know when he's coming back, then you need to be ready and prepared for any time. And in chapter twenty-six of Matthew, it's interesting when he's in the garden. About to be betrayed, he tells his disciples to be watchful and to pray. He says it twice. And what happens? He finds them sleeping. Jesus knew they needed God's strength to be alert, but they slept because they didn't understand the hour was upon them. And Jesus' betrayer came. He was arrested by soldiers. They were caught off guard. And the temptation came in the form of them abandoning Jesus. And verse 56 said, all the disciples left him and fled. Here we see not only the disciples' weakness, but the weakness in all of us. Who in our own strength can resist the power of temptations when they suddenly come upon us? Think of in the past when you've been tempted, how cleverly your temptations have pleaded with you for just one last indulgence. See, Jesus knew his disciples were weak. This is why he told them to pray. And that's exactly what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 6. He tells them in verse 13, Take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And in verse 18, he tells them to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Such prayers protect us from temptation and make us more aware of temptations around us. It causes us to be more aligned on God and less reliant on ourselves. It's like our wartime radio to home base that gives us the supplies we need to keep going. So I want to ask you, how is your prayer life going? If it's like mine, it's easily distracting. Now at a practical level, if parts of the disciples' problem is that they were tired, don't leave your prayer life to the end of the day when you have no energy left. Maybe start your day with prayer. And as you pray, pray regularly for an awareness of temptation and the strength to resist it when it comes. And especially as temptation happens, in those very moments... to keep praying that God might give you the strength to resist it until you've removed yourself or the temptation is past. And Paul also tells us to pray for our friends. In fact, call them up, meet up with them for the purpose of prayer. Imagine if our youth groups were full of people regularly praying for one another. We're in a spiritual war. We can still get shot or trapped behind enemy lines. So we need a way of calling for help. And in World War II, a badly damaged bomber crashed into the sea in enemy waters after being hit by the enemy. Struggling in freezing cold waters, unable to radio an accurate position to base, the four men faced a cold and lonely death. But as the aircraft went down, the crew had managed to salvage their secret weapon, a carrier pigeon. A carrier pigeon called Winky, who was released in the hope it could fly back to their airbase to alert headquarters for their need for help and after flying 120 miles, Winky made it back. The pigeon was not carrying a message, but they were able to calculate the position of the downed aircraft by taking into position the time it would have taken for the bird to arrive, the wind direction, and use the impact of the oil on Winky's feathers to determine her flight speed. A rescue mission was launched, and the men were found within 15 minutes. Now, as amazing as Winky was, we have something far greater. Pigeons, as you can imagine, didn't always make their way back and the message they brought back wasn't always clear. But through Jesus, our prayers are always intercepted by God and he always provides us with exactly the help we need when we ask. So let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that death has been defeated, our future resurrection has been guaranteed, And therefore, give us hope and give us the spiritual watchfulness that we need through prayer so that we might resist the temptations of the devil while we live in these last days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.